Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm joined in the studio today by Mark Mandelez. He is the president of the J. DeBlosh Group, a consulting firm in national security and foreign policy. He is also a senior advisor at the Center for Naval Analyses. He has authored numerous books and articles, including The Development of the B-52 and Jet Propulsion and Military Transformation Past and Present. Mark, thanks for being on Acquisition Talk. Eric, thank you very much, and thank you to uh, the Mercatus Center and to George Mason University for setting up this great opportunity for me. So first off, real quick, I saw you got your PhD from Indiana University, which has some fame for the Bloomington School of Institutional Economics. Have you ever met Eleanor Vincent Ostrom, and has the Bloomington School influenced you at all? Well, yes, I was a graduate student at Indiana University, and I took classes from both Vincent and Eleanor Ostrom. I enjoyed those classes very much, but I did not join the institutional school of theirs on public choice. However, there are some important things that Vincent and Eleanor taught and made me think about. So, for example, Vincent wrote in co-authorship with a fellow's Charles Thibault and uh, Robert Warren, Organization of Government in Metropolitan Areas, and that was in 1961. And his subsequent work on a multiple and overlapping governments versus centralization model advocated by Woodrow Wilson was also key to my thinking. That is, I didn't fully understand Vincent's argument at the time, but I remembered it and kept thinking about it as I continued my own intellectual growth. I think that both Vincent and Elner would have been very interested in the argument that we're going to talk about later on today about the general board and the Navy and how the general board and its generation of a multi-organizational system composed of itself, which mediated and coordinated activities conducted by the Naval War College, the fleet, and the Bureau of Aeronautics. I think that Vincent and Eleanor would have been very interested in how that played out. Yeah, it's interesting that you brought up uh, Woodrow Wilson there, because that actually was one of the early things that got me interested in administrative policy, because, yeah, he brought in the whole idea from Germany, right, that bureaucracies are efficient, but we need to still have the policy, the direction, and the objectives of the bureaucracy to be determined by the people through election. So he has this policy administration dichotomy, which really got me interested into the public uh, administration regime. Right. That was politics of administration, I think. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah. Um, There are many things interesting about uh, Woodrow Wilson. The first is that uh, he was the first American PhD in political science. That is, he got his PhD here in the U.S. at the Johns Hopkins University. But with respect to your comments, we have to remember the kinds of political problems that he was facing and looking at at the time in the 1880s. You had a large mass of uneducated proletariat coming over from Central Europe, Southern Europe, Eastern Europe, 
and they coalesced politically under the leadership of various city political bosses. And that was an affront to the establishment in the way they allowed for mass funds from city administration to be used for their own purposes. So Wilson was one of those academics who were trying to figure out how to defeat the power of these immigrant political bosses and their hold over the municipal uh, purse strings. Right. And it's interesting that the problems that he faced there are somewhat similar to what we have in the Department of Defense where, okay, you're dispersing funds, but um, it's going to lower-level organizations who may or may not have the holistic interest in mind that one might assume. So then it's how you administer that a little bit. That was a very interesting background. But you can already see you've written a lot on organizational design, and there's just a lot of interesting things that came out of that, which is why I kind of wanted to start with the Bloomington School. But you've written a lot on how do organizations affect military innovation specifically. And in your book, The uh, B-52 Development, you brought up an interesting story where in the Army, Eisenhower, before he became a general, was with Patton exploring different concepts of tank maneuvering that looked a lot like what was going to happen with the Germans in 1940 in Blitzkrieg. And he was told by his superiors, basically, that his ideas were dangerous and he was going to get court-martialed if he pursued it any further. And then you contrasted that resistance to change and technological change in uh, the organization of the Army to what happened in the Navy where, yes, there was institutional bias around the battleship design, but really the Navy was able to transition in that interwar period between World War I and II towards carriers, and that put the U.S. in a pretty good position. Can you describe what went on there? Well, the first thing to think about is at the level of organization that we're, or level of analysis that we're thinking about and looking at. So for the Navy, I recognized that what the Navy had developed unconsciously and without deliberation was a multi-organizational system in which components interacted and were coordinated by their own action. Now, that sounds very abstract and and esoteric, but in fact, it's quite clear if you understand what you're looking for. So between 1873 and 1900, the naval community established three kinds of organizations that were instrumental in providing the organizational infrastructure for the multi-organizational system. There was the 1873 establishment of the Naval Institute in Annapolis, uh, which was an organization unique in that it focused on Navy affairs, but it maintains its editorial independence from uh, the Navy as an organization and institution. There was also the establishment of the Naval War College, And in 1900, by Secretary of the Navy John Long, the establishment of the General Board. Now, what these organizations did is they started 
generating knowledge. They were a focal point for criticism of ideas, criticism of Navy doctrine, criticism of Navy technology, criticism of Navy operations, and the development of ways to solve those kinds of problems that they saw. The Navy also had an interesting set of cultural attributes. Uh, One cultural attribute that I prize above all others is the Navy's commitment to empirical realism, that is to looking at the real world as best as they can. This effort to be empirical, to focus on the truth of assertions, was instrumental in the operation of the Navy's general board and the creation of that multi-organizational system. What happened over time between 1900 and the early 1930s was that the general board coordinated the interaction of the fleet, the Naval War College, and the Bureau of Aeronautics. The Bureau of Aeronautics was set up after uh, 1921, 1922 to lead the technological development in aviation. And what the general board did was it coordinated the activities. So you'd have uh, the Naval War College asking for realistic rules of evidence in experiments conducted by the fleet to use in their tactical and strategic simulations. The Naval War College faculty corresponded with aviators at sea to learn about real-life operational problems in using the technology as it was developing. The Bureau of Aeronautics, Rear Admiral Moffett, used Naval War College simulations and the fleet exercises and experiments to write performance specifications for future aircraft. Naval War College game designers then used these specifications to postulate future military operations. The fleet used aircraft performance estimates to inform operational issues examined in exercises at sea. So the Navy used this interaction to fine-tune and hone operational concepts, uh, whether you should launch aircraft in pulses or in individual numbers when attacking. They discovered through the simulations and exercises that launching large numbers of aircraft was far more effective means to attack enemy ships. But this was a matter of observation, and the Navy was more conscientious in developing these ideas than was the Army. The Army didn't have the kind of institutional infrastructure. It did have an Army War College, but the Army War College's interaction with men like Dwight Eisenhower and Patton was not conducted in the same way. The plurality there of the Navy is pretty interesting. I didn't realize that the Navy board came into life in 1900. It kind of reminds me, okay, Lai Root, who was the secretary of the Army, installed the general staff model, which was this model that kind of was imported from Germany into the Army in 1903. And that gave it a very different type of organizational structure. And it doesn't seem like that same general staff model really made its way into the Navy, which was a little bit more pluralistic. Is that, is that right? It's consistent um, with, with the general argument, but you know there are a couple of minute corrections to make. Um, Elihu Root used the Prussian model of the general staff for the U.S. 
Now, Paul Y. Hammond, in 1962, published a book called Organizing for Defense, and it contains a very detailed assessment of the efforts in both the Department of the War and Department of the Navy to apply a general staff model to organize, administer, and manage their affairs. What Hammond showed is that the model that the former general staff that Root applied was not a good copy of what the Germans were doing. They didn't understand the Prussian model, and they didn't consider the ways in which the Prussian model did not fit the U.S. experience. For example, uh, the relationship of the Prussian general staff to leaders of the country. Germany, of course, was a monarchy at the time, and U.S., of course, was a democracy. So the access points into government would be different. The ways of approving and generating proposals for military activities were different. Uh, There are many differences. So what Root applied was a bastardized form that created more problems than it solved. And you can see that in the continual reorganization of the Army general staff. Uh, In the Navy, uh, Hammond demonstrates that there were great opponents of the model of the Prussian general staff. So Hammond discusses the opposition to that kind of reform. And there's another book that's quite relevant to that, and that's John Kuhn. Uh, John Kuhn is a great military historian at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. He was also a naval aviator. Uh, He retired as a commander, served during wartime in the Persian Gulf. The guy is fantastic. And he wrote a book called America's First General Staff, A Short History of the Rise and Fall of the General Board of the Navy. And he discusses the uh, evolution of the general board that fills in the great details to the general logic outline that I presented in uh, the B-52 book and in uh, my transformation book and elaborated on in the co-authored work with Thomas C. Hone and Norman Friedman on the introduction of carrier-based aviation into the Navy. I think that was about 1996. So one thing that you pointed out to me was that before World War II, the U.S. and the British navies had access to similar technologies with respect to carrier aviation. But during the course of the war, the U.S. was far better able to integrate new ideas into doctrine and effectuate itself. Can you describe what was going on there? Well, the British, of course, led the way. They built the first aircraft carrier during World War I, and they continued working on it. And U.S. aviators and Admiral Sims were quite interested in the work of and the operations that the British had conducted. But with the end of the war, the competition with and suspicion, American suspicion, uh, with the British came to fore. And so there was a lot of work that the U.S. Navy did in secret. And you can look at various photographs of American ships in the interwar period where there is deliberate fuzzing of certain technologies, uh, radar and other kinds of technologies, to make sure that the British, upon looking at these kinds of photographs, could not begin to copy or note dissimilarities in the way technology was evolving. The U.S. was quite secretive in design criteria. So 
we hid the impact of elevators on the carriers to allow for a larger number of aircraft being launched. The British didn't understand that, and they continued with their own design. Now, the overall problem is the way the British organized their aviation. So shortly after the war, the Royal Air Force took over and consolidated and centralized aviation development under its auspices. The naval aviators lost that independence that the American aviators had working in the Navy. And that independence was central to the slowness of the British in making innovations in technology and understanding the need for new technologies or other kind of solutions to operational problems that they would face. And that's why during World War II, they used American aircraft largely for naval operations. Right. So whereas the biggest purchaser of aircraft in England was the Royal Air Force, they had control over the procurement of the naval aircraft, whereas the Navy had a separation where you had two different organizations, the Navy and the Army, procuring their own airplanes. So that went a long way to, for example, pushing the development of the air-cooled engine, which may not have actually been pursued by the Army if they had been leading the procurement. Yes, yes. And there are any number of other factors that point to the same conclusion that you did. For example, ground-based aviators didn't understand the impact of sea salt in the air and what that would do to various aircraft that they had. So. U.S. naval aviators understood that problem and did not have the interference of ground aviators in that factor relating to acquisition. So after World War II, there was kind of a mad rush to go rationalize defense management. Can you describe the mentality at the time? What kind of assumptions were made about how systems should be managed? Well, this is part of the overall American ideology about the importance of capitalism and big business. Big business and their managers were seen as extremely competent. Government officials, for example, were not seen as competent. And that attitude and image has continued for many years. I remember talking to General Bryce Poe of the United States Air Force, who told me an anecdote about businessmen leading American aircraft companies, acting as if they were the font of knowledge. And Bryce Poe responded, hey, wait a minute, I've got more aircraft, more different types of aircraft, more bases, any number of other factors that render this judgment of their singular superiority uh, questionable. So this applies to the early 50s. Certainly, it did not apply in 1945. In 1945, the Army and the Army Air Corps were still using the acquisition processes that they had used during World War II. Post-1945, uh, you begin to see with the Army Air Corps leaders arguing in favor of Air Force independence, the claim that when Air Force leaders use American business methods, they are more efficient and more competent than the old army, messy, disorganized, chaotic way. 
So the B-52, the first general operational requirement of 1945, was completed using the old system and the old ways. And the old system and the old ways kind of continued through the famous week in October 1948 when Boeing engineers went into a hotel room in Dayton, Ohio and reviewed the problems of the straight-wing six-turboprop plan form and came out with an eight-turbojet swept-wing plan form for the B-52 that was then accepted as the general shape of what the B-52 would become. Of course, the Boeing engineers were aided by the fact that they had been working on the B-47. So the B-47's first flight, I believe, was in September 1947. So they knew, they had good reason to expect that the swept-wing configuration and the turbojets would produce a flyable, feasible aircraft. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting that came out of your book there on the B-52, that, okay, between 1945 and 1948, there was this really dramatic shift in what the design of the B-52 was. So originally, the B-52 was supposed to be straight wings. It was going to have six turboprop engines. Its flight radius was 3,000 miles, and its speed was about 300 miles per hour. And then 1948, the B-52 design went to swept wings, eight turbojet engines instead of the propellers. The flight radius went from 3,000 miles to 6,750, and the speed grew from 300 miles an hour to 560 miles. So basically, the range and speed doubled over that time for the B-52, and that all kind of happened in this continual change of what the design would be from 1945. And you showed nicely that, well, it wasn't just they were learning on paper what needed to be done. They looked at the B-47, which had started a couple years earlier, and then its prototyping really informed the design of the B-52. So they were learning from empirical reality, and then they're applying that, and that's kind of where we started to see this kind of nonlinear progress of the plane. So how did this experience kind of challenge the conventional wisdom of rationally planned and managed innovation? Well, that's a great question. I don't think it did. I think that the Air Force managers didn't understand themselves how effective their management of the B-52 had been. The three years between 1945 and 1948 uh, were years in which we were consolidating a great deal of knowledge. I don't think the experience of the B-52 did challenge conventional wisdom. It was a matter of process which was working well, but the Air Force leadership did not understand how well it was working. This was a period, 1945 forward, in which a great deal of information and knowledge was being systematized about aerodynamics, about propulsion, about the use of jet engines, and so on. And things were changing so quickly, it was very difficult for operational leaders to keep track. So there's a famous, well, for me, it was a famous quote from the deputy chief of staff for materiel. His name was Howard Craig, 
who noted that a few weeks before the decision to use a turbojet swept wing platform uh, had been accepted, he noted that the B-52 is designed to supersede the B-36 as a long-range strategic bomber, and its combination of aerodynamic refinement and turbopropeller engines are the only presently known means of achieving characteristics of both long-range and high-speed Large improvements in this class of aircraft will come with radical developments which will require completely new airframe developments unless supersonic propellers become a reality. Future large bombers will be powered by turbojet engines. However, neither of these developments are sufficiently near at hand that the turboprop step can be eliminated. Two weeks later, the B-47 flew. So we have this problem of what do senior managers know, what can they know. So it seems to me that the experience of the B-52 was just something that was occurring right under their noses. But with the efforts to free the Air Force, provide uh, independence of airmen from the ground army, there was an effort to find a political justification for it. And the political justification for it, one of the primary political justifications, was that the Air Force leaders would use business methods to be more efficient than the um, messy army, messy chaotic army. So that's what they used, not so much to justify or to apply the lessons learned from B-52, B-47 efforts, but as ways to do other things organizationally, that is, seek independence from the Army. So let me, I guess, respond with what I was thinking about why it did kind of challenge the conventional wisdom. So when the Air Force was young and during this time, they had any number of different programs that were competing, overlapping, duplicating each other. And it was from a prototype, actually getting something kind of austere, quick, trying out new designs, seeing what happens, and whether it might actually do something you didn't expect, which is exactly what happened with the drag on the B-47. It's when you have that kind of environment that's diverse, where you're exploring many evolutionary types of paths, that you can see how well, there's lots of knowledge that will spill over and that will kind of inform another design that kind of gets it into this iterative cycle before you kind of want to lock it down and put it into production and the like. So the Air Force at the time, yes, they were experimenting like that, but very quickly their organization, they created a systems program office organization with a very big general staff. They were the first to kind of align themselves to the program budget from the National Security Act of 1949. And really, the point of the program budget is such that top leadership can look at all the programs, all the projects, and then say, these are duplicative. I'm going to eliminate this one, rationalize it, and kind of move forward from there. And I almost feel that, well, when you start destroying the diversity of the experimentation in the prototype. We always hear we want 
rapid, austere prototyping, but we rarely see it be done in an environment where it's not pre-planned to go into a development and production stage. And so that's kind of what I was getting at with the question there that, okay, well, the B-52, it got into an iterative design cycle precisely because of the environment in which it was in was so dynamic that you're not just going to do a paper design and just do a systems analysis of alternatives. You're actually learning in the environment and updating expectations. Good points. It seems to me that aircraft design already was iterative. B-47, there were many changes, uh, especially given the fact that the use of jet aircraft at the time was so revolutionary. There was so little known. I mean, we had information about the uh, German efforts. We had the P-59 air comet. We had the P-80, which, by the way, took six months from design through first flight. And it was a very fast, austere prototype. So, yes, but it strikes me that the iterative design process was already there. What you're talking about uh, with the, the notion of program office is the introduction of the efficiency concept into development decision-making. Uh, I see that as a, as a tremendous error. It's a tremendous error of organization and design. This problem relates to the problem that Karl Popper, who I think is probably the greatest philosopher of science of the last two or three hundred years, made a key argument uh, in his anti-fascism, anti-national socialism research during World War II. He produced Poverty of Historicism and the Open Society and its Enemies, attacking the logic and the foundations of the thinking that was underlying fascism and national socialism and communism. One of the things that Popper argued in The Poverty of Historicism is that you can't know now what you can only know in the future. Applied to the problem of acquisition, this means that the efforts to organize for efficiency means that you have to assume that you can plan that you will know something in the future. I get you what you're saying. You're saying... The idea of the program office was you plan a program, its requirements, its costs, its schedule, and then you put some guy in charge of it, and he goes execute. So here we come back to the policy administration dichotomy. You assume that all of the information can be aggregated to the policymaker level. They can perform an analysis, and then they can create a general direction of plan that constrains what the administrator will execute to. All of the information was embedded in the planning phase. He's just executing standing orders to some degree and not getting into this iterative learning feedback loop where he's discovering new information along the way. Or new theoretical principles, or new theoretical knowledge, or knowledge that ties together different fields, all of which was occurring at government expense in the research and development phase of these aircraft, and all of which occurred in the later programs under a program manager. That all accounted for schedule delays, performance shortfalls, and budget overruns, because we can't know today what we can only know tomorrow. 
it's interesting to note that in the Air Force, there was all sorts of designs and prototypes going on through the 40s and 50s. And then really, from the late 50s through most of the 60s, you almost had zero. You basically, that's what they were saying in Congress. There were zero real prototypes made after the F-4, but the F-4 was actually a Navy-developed plane. And until you really started getting into the F-15, the only one was the F-111, the TFX, that was the only one that was being designed and produced through the 60s. And George Scherer, who was the VP of Boeing, but before he was the technical lead in the 1940s during the B-52, I found this great quote from him when he was testifying to Congress just about this problem that there was no more experimentation and prototyping. There was just kind of like this one program, take all. He says, quote, without flying the prototype, there was no way to know that the B-47 would have lower drag than any airplane then flying, and thereby would make up for the fuel consumption disadvantage of the jet engine. It was this experience with the B-47 which led to the B-52 and the KC-135, that's the air refueling tanker. About the B-47 prototype, the big jet airline era might have been delayed another decade or two. A jet airplane now holds the world distance record. I just thought that was interesting that, okay, it's really through these prototypes that we learn what new concepts actually pan out in reality rather than relying on articulated knowledge that we have ex ante to those experiences. Yes, good points. And I especially like your quote from George Scherer. Your arguments are very similar to the kinds of arguments that Burton Klein, Meckling, and the others were making at RAND. Uh, RAND in the, in the 50s did a number of tremendous studies of research and development looking at the importance of multiple competing efforts to produce knowledge through the competition of the design teams and the production staff. Those things were at variance with the logic and the assumptions behind the program manager office, where the program manager was the repository of all knowledge relevant to that particular program, and that the program manager could schedule and program out uh, discoveries to cover and to solve the unknowns that they anticipated uh, or that they knew about at that particular time of design. So some of this linear method of planning and then moving your way through a program has also filtered its way into what we have now as the Department of Defense Directive 5000.01, which was first installed by uh, David Packard in 1971. And that itself was really based on some McNamara policies on key transition points there. But this kind of outlines a stage gate process of weapon systems development, where you kind of go from prototyping to full-scale development to production. And you're trying not to have these iterative feedbacks. You're trying to get through it and go through the approval once through the whole gate. And despite that, we seem to be having these long cycle times of 10 to 15 years to kind of get these programs out there. And I want to read a nice quote from you talking about the DOD 5000. You say, DOD management and planning processes assume that, one, relevant and unbiased information about cost, schedule, and technological performance is available or can be developed as required. Two, 
it is possible to prepare a ranked set of near and future term threats. And three, acquisition managers have appropriate analytical tools to compare alternative options to achieve military tasks and missions. So I think it's kind of clear, and this is what we've just been talking about, that these assumptions don't really hold in the real world, right? I mean, oftentimes there's just things like turbulence, right, that has very unique properties under any different type of wing that can't really be predicted using computers, even today with supercomputers. So what's an alternative way of approaching acquisition? Great question. Now, I had the distinct honor of working at the Office of Force Transformation for a couple of years. I was invited by uh, Vice Admiral Sabrowski to help. There are two components to this office. Uh, one component would develop a strategic appraisal of DOD programs and would help consolidate or integrate service and joint force command roadmaps, transformation roadmaps for the secretary so he could decide what programs he wanted to keep, what programs to fund at uh, greater levels, what programs to cut. There were also the work in, um, on individual technologies. I worked on both elements at Force Transformation, and in the work on the individual systems, I began to think about an alternative to the DODD 5001, DODI 5000.2 model. And it appeared that we were developing one. Uh, it wasn't clearly stated. We wrote no memoranda or documents to discuss and institutionalize how we were doing the process, but we used some system design principles, and we coupled those design principles to management principles. So let me first mention the system design principles. Open architecture, modular design, standard interfaces, high technology readiness level components, operational testing, and deadlines for the completion of work. The management principles were really efforts to help enable engineers and testers apply the system design principles. And those were to conduct operational experimentation and apply lessons from real-life experience. So in one program I worked on called Wolfpack, we got Army Battlefield Lab reports on our performance of the vehicle and its technologies in Iraq and Afghanistan. It got 100% rave reviews, by the way. So anyway, the system design principles are clearly an effort. If you're looking at hindsight, at the totality of what force transformation did, those system design principles were designed to deal with uncertainty. They were designed to deal with an innovating enemy. And it was designed to work at a level of the budget and stay within that budget. So if you think about this, if you use high technology readiness level components and you have a deadline in searching for those components, it means that you are innovating in a particular specified time period. And that's an arbitrary decision, how long to work on a particular program. And then what you can do is you can have iterations of the same model incorporating both operational experimentation of the prototype and also 
previous experience with the technology in the vehicle or other technology as it is being applied in wartime, in combat. In doing so, you can make great rapid progress. And in fact, I think it was possible to go within the enemy's OODA loop, the observe, orient, decide, act, conceptual framework proposed by Colonel John Boyd. The example that I go back to is that example regarding the Wolfpack Project. The Wolfpack Project was a vehicle into which we incorporated a set of lethal and non-lethal suites. In six years, uh, we developed three iterations of this Wolfpack Project, and we deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan each model of the Wolfpack. We did it with a budget of about a $50 million. Now, think about this in terms of its major competitor at the time. That was the Army's future combat system, which was in operation for many more years, and it consumed billions of dollars and did not produce a single operational prototype. So with Wolfpack, we had deadlines. We did operational experimentation. We were able to pull and insert new technologies. We developed three prototypes and deployed three times in course of about six years. We learned a great deal. We were within budget, and we met all of our delivery schedules, all using the system design and the management design principles proposed. So is it possible? Yes, it's possible to have an alternative form of an acquisition system. We proved it. We showed it empirically. There were other technologies developed at uh, the Office of Force Transformation, for example, TACSAT, uh, Tactical Satellites, uh, that did the same thing. But what's entailed by all of this is a stepping back from the logic and the accumulated problems embedded in each reformulation or reorganization of DODD 5001 effort. The Wolfpack project and the other technologies developed in force transformation avoided almost all of the flaws and the problems entailed by 5001. What remains is that an effort be developed or proposed to permit an alternative acquisition system similar to the one employed at Force Transformation to develop more evidence and information about how this system would, would operate. Congress then, of course, would apply this information in its deliberations about Title X and in its instructions to Defense Department for how the Defense Department should organize its acquisition and resources management expenditures. So that was a really interesting story there about Wolfpack versus the Future Combat Systems, FCS, which is really kind of famous in the Department of Defense for how it failed. And despite using things like other transactions authorities and these other kinds of models that were a little bit new or different, and it reminds me that you can have a better system or an operable system or something with high technology at lower costs at the same time. We always tend to assume, oh, okay, well, this is the next generation aircraft. It's going to do something else. I'm adding something. 
So it's going to cost more, right? So I'm going to do some kind of linear relationship on weight and time or something like that with cost. And really, that's the point of innovation. Innovation, you don't really know what it is you're going to get. And it could be, well, I'm getting more capability. And it also has all these new processes, composites, whatever it might be. So the cost might go up. But sometimes just the concept, the difference of the innovation or how it's going to be employed, you could really get huge capability gains and decrease your costs at the same time. So I think for our audience there, I really highly recommend reading Systems Design and Project Management Principles from Mark Mandelis. I'm going to link to that so you can dive a little bit into those system design principles, which are all really important. One of the things that you said there about deadlines, yeah, I actually really believe in kind of like artificial deadlines. And sometimes that's not what we want in the Department of Defense. We say, well, what is the rational basis of what the schedule is going to be so I can program, okay, I'm going to have a milestone then and I need to line up funds at that time. It doesn't need to be, okay, I've done a huge quantitative analysis and it's going to take 16 months. You can just say, you know, give me what the best that you can, but here are a rank order of some requirements that we want you to fulfill. Show me what you got in a year, and then we can talk about going forward. One of the things that I thought you said was interesting there, too, was the the technology readiness level, the TRL, high TRL components. And that really, to me, kind of sounds like, well, you want to do more subsystem and component development independent of any system architecture, and then you can kind of rapidly integrate those high TRL type objects later in a more austere manner. But that's something that we had been doing. OMB Circular A109 kind of restricted a lot of those subsystem developments unless they were tied to specific programs and end user capabilities. Uh, What do you think about that move towards, okay, well, let's build out subsystems independent of platforms themselves, but then we still need to think about the platform and open architecture, right, so that we kind of had this ability to kind of what they want to do is plug and play, but then you also want to do independent component development. How How do you see that kind of tension working out? Well, if you expect that you're going to do several iterations of a particular project, and you understand that the development process is largely a matter of recombination of existing components, you can exploit the rapid development of knowledge within the general market. You're not focusing on the development and discovery of new knowledge or developing basic knowledge. You're applying knowledge that is existing and being developed and you can do it several times. And if you've got plug-and-play, open architecture and standard interfaces, you can take components out and put in new ones. We demonstrated that in the Stiletto program, the little 80-foot boat that was developed at Force Transformation. We also developed and showed we could do that with, with Wolfpack. We pulled the effort to put in an active denial technology capability, which was a microwave weapon that heats up the top one sixty-second of an inch of one's skin, and that would move people. 
So if you're using Wolfpack in an urban environment and there's a demonstration and you don't want to hurt women and children, but you want to make sure you can target terrorists or others behind women and children, you can move the women and children away. The uh, the microwaves don't cause lasting damage. But unfortunately, the manufacturer of the technology could not size it to fit into the vehicle at that point. So we pulled it. We put in something else. And in doing so, using the open architecture, standard interfaces, modular design, we can fine-tune capabilities to the environments in which they're going to be used. And so that's a tremendous advantage. It doesn't force the project office to design a system for all environments, which is far more expensive than designing for particular environments. There are all sorts of other advantages to this, but it's a way of thinking about the development of technologies to suit and solve particular problems that we face now. Yeah, that reminds me that I forget who said this, but he said, well, it's very difficult for any one country to get so far ahead scientifically or engineering-wise from any other country. But really where the differences can show up is in what one decides to do with those technologies that do exist. And that brings that back for me when you said, well, you got to look at what's going on in the broader economy and market structure, all those technologies, right? As the Department of Defense spending and its contribution to research and development is kind of shrinking as a proportion of the total research and development funds out there. This combinatorial innovation, which is how variants work, but I think it's getting to the same thing that you're talking about. You have all of these innovations going on that just aren't specifically in defense, but they could be multi-purpose and they could be applied to defense. And how do you use all of those? Yes. One of the implications of this form of acquisition is that it forces the engineers and the operators to have closer interactions. The operators have to be able to tell the engineers more clearly what it is that they need. The engineers have to be skilled not only in listening to the operators, but also in terms of search. So what you're uh, looking for are different kinds of skills in surveying vast swaths of engineering and scientific activity. And that means that the rotation in place of engineers who are working on these kinds of systems has to be speeded up. What you don't want is engineers who have been out of the problems of actually building things and designing things and inventing things and keep them only in a managerial kind of situation. Richard Feynman talked about this in an interesting way. When he was on the Challenger investigation, he noted that the managers of the system estimated likelihood of failure at one in uh, 100,000. And the actual engineers who were doing the work estimated failure at one in 100. Well, here was a three-order magnitude of difference between the engineers who are actually doing the work right now and, and managers who were engineers formerly in their careers who didn't fully understand all the nuances of the technologies being employed. The effort that we'd want in this 
alternative acquisition program is to incorporate rapid, more rapid turnover of engineers who would do management, do the program uh, management, and engineers who are actually doing the work. And that way, the program managers are more current and understand more readily how to recombine newly developed technologies to achieve the operational goals. That's very interesting. You know, you often hear these days about the needs for strong technical founders um, and how that really helps a company kind of develop innovation. But that isn't really from my perspective, what the Department of Defense was kind of built upon. So to kind of explain that, let me go back to Elting Morrison, who wrote this really amazing book in 1966 called Men, Machines, and Modern Times, which I know you and I really both appreciate a lot. Yeah. But he says of inventors, quote, a surprising number turned out to be people with little formal education, who drank a good deal, who were careless with money, and who had trouble with wives or other women. This is also, I suppose, what is now called a good stereotype of the painter or poet. And it is quite probable that the inventor, who is also something of an engineer, is, like all great engineers, an artist. But then he wrote how, quote, we have pretty well left the point where most interesting work can be done by the single men working alone, which is one way of saying the virtuosity of the inventor has, on the whole, given way to systematic research and development. And so, I mean, this idea didn't just come from Morrison, even from Joseph Schumpeter, who I was reading recently in uh, Democracy, Capitalism, and Socialism. He says, innovation is really being reduced to routine. He says, quote, innovation itself is being reduced to routine. Technological progress is increasingly becoming the business of teams of trained specialists who turn out what is required to make it work in predictable ways. The romance of earlier commercial adventures rapidly wearing away because of so many more things that can be strictly calculated that had of old to be visualized in a flash of genius. So what I'm kind of getting out of Schumpeter and Morrison here was, okay, well, we might have had this nice heyday of inventors who are basically picking the low-hanging fruit. But we've kind of gotten into this era where things are so complicated and specialized. You have to have this technostructure, that's Galbraith's words, around the engineering team that kind of brings everything together. And it's more about the process more than the individual people going off and doing their own thing. And that seemed to make sense at the time. But we today have the benefit of seeing these big industrial firms get disrupted by startups based on these strong technical founders who are very individualistic and oftentimes had these uh, concepts that most investors thought of the personal computer as a bad idea. The internet wasn't exactly well looked upon in the early years. But we see like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and now Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos, really strong technical founders. What do you think about this? Well, I think You've posed a great problem. It seems to me that we're moving more towards a hybrid type situation with this economy. So the computer age has permitted people to innovate very rapidly as individuals. So you have massive, a large class of people who develop apps. But 
to exploit the apps more effectively, you need an organization. And so what you have is both. You have individual innovators who are doing work. You have large-scale organizations that fine-tune it, apply it to new things, develop other resources. For example, Google has its own organizations, sub-organizations that do work on fundamental knowledge and research and development. So they are founded by uh, startups, founded by individuals, and then you have their recognition of the need for more systematic organizational effort that applies specialized knowledge to solve specific individual problems. I really think that there's a benefit to this kind of pluralistic organization because there's many problems out there and many different types of organizational designs might be suitable to one or another. So you really want this big ecosystem of private and public, large and small, innovative or sustaining innovation type things. And it's that ecosystem that thrives and th through which the technology comes out of. And I think that uh, going back to Armin Alch and Burton Klein and those early RAND guys, that was really their point. I agree. That's it for the first half of my conversation with Mark Mandelis. Be sure to look out for the second episode where Mark explains whether technological progress is slowing down, how we can create high reliability organizations, what we can learn from luminaries like Herbert Simon, Friedrich Hayek, and Karl Popper, and much more. Thanks again for listening to Acquisition Talk. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.